Just a reminder, this evening at 6 p.m., we are having an ice cream social and a hymn sing. Regardless of the rain, um, we are going to move it inside probably into the, uh, into the gymnasium over here. So if you have an opportunity, come join us as we turn our attention to God's Word. I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans 8. We are going to look at a uh, very familiar passage today, Romans 8, 28 to 32. Uh, and to frame our time, I, I, I thought I would, I would tell you why I'm here. You may or you may not know this, but uh, last February 2020, um, I lost my church. I was fired. Um, it was brutal. I want to tell you a few things. I, I don't want to tell you a whole lot, but just a few things. Number one was this was not my choice or our choice or our desire. Second, there was no moral failure. I didn't have an illicit relationship. I didn't steal money from the coffers of the church. And third, it was brutal. It was incredibly hurtful. I mean, I was thinking about it this morning. Imagine if tomorrow you woke up and all of this was gone. The friendships, the conversation, the, the prayer meetings, the gathering together to worship. Imagine if there was nothing but radio silence. That's what we experienced. It's hurtful. I tell you that. Not to ask you to feel sorry for me. I tell you that because there's something inside the human heart, in my heart, maybe in yours, that wants to believe that because I'm a follower of Jesus, this stuff is not going to happen to me. My guess is that you might know that expectation. I follow Jesus. Why would, why would anything hard come my way? Well, what the Apostle Paul tells us this morning addresses us where we are. So I'm going to read to us Romans 8, 28, and then pray. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is God's word. Pray with me, would you? 
teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. In Christ's name, amen. I suspect if you've been around the church for any length of time, you have been warned, be careful when you offer this word, this word of God to people in counsel, in comfort. Because if we're not careful, these words can sound like religiously uh, insensitive platitudes. They can sound like a dismissal as opposed to what they are intended to be, a comfort. But to never offer these words would be cruel. It would be uncaring. And it would be unbiblical because these words are God's words to us through the Apostle Paul. And they are words that are intended to to give us hope and comfort, even in the midst of suffering and heartache. So the question we have to ask is, what is Paul actually saying here? And I want to do that by thinking first about what Paul isn't saying, and then thinking about what Paul is saying. So what isn't Paul saying here? When Paul says that God works all things for the good of those who love him, he is not saying that everything you experience or everything I experience is good. Paul does not say, and we know that God works all things. We know that God, and we know that for those who love God, all things are good. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. There are bad things in this world. There is heartbreak. There is hurt. I spent yesterday at Vanderbilt's cardiac unit visiting with two different families of people who are knocking on death's door. And that is, that's not a great place to be. That is, that is hard. That is scary. And the fact of the matter is it's right to call that hard and scary and hurtful. Perhaps you remember the name Joseph. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis. Joseph is the son of Jacob. He is the 11th of 12 brothers. He's his father's favorite. And because he's his father's favorite, his brothers hate him. In fact, they hate him so much that they actually plan to murder him when given an opportunity. But they're talked out of it by one of the brothers in a moment of of clarity. And so instead of murdering him, they just sell him into slavery. And he is taken to Egypt, and he is sold into the house of Potiphar, you remember. And Potiphar's wife accuses him of uh, uh, seducing her, and he ends up in jail, in prison. That Joseph. Now, you might remember that... After years of imprisonment, Joseph actually ascends to the second position of authority in the nation of Egypt. And because there's a famine in the land of Canaan, 
Joseph's family's, family migrates to Egypt um, as refugees. And there, there's this sweet reunion, you remember, and everybody gets along. But do you remember what happens when Jacob dies, Joseph's father? His brothers began to, to fear. They began to wonder, maybe Joseph was nice to us because dad was alive. But now that dad's gone, maybe now he's going to exact revenge. And so they came to Joseph and they fell down on their faces and they begged him for mercy. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers as they quaked in front of him? He said, as for you, you meant this for evil. Against me. But God meant it for good. Friends, this is so important to see. Evil is a real thing. And we are never commanded or expected to call evil things or evil experiences or evil events good. Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus, is reduced to tears. But more than that, Jesus was angry. Jesus was indignant. Our translation says that Jesus was deeply moved, but the Greek is much, much stronger. Jesus radiated with anger. Why? Because death is wrong. Death is bad. Death is not the way it is supposed to be. Beloved, I, I've only been here for a little while, and I don't know you all that well, but what I do know about you is that many of you have experienced so many of life's hurts and heartbreaks, the loss of a child, physical even sexual abuse, betrayal by a spouse, death, and disease. And I want you to hear this. Those things are not the way it's supposed to be. Those things are wrong. Those things are bad. And you are absolutely justified in calling those things what they are. Because when Paul says that God works all things for the good of those who love him, he is not saying that everything we experience is good. That being said, what Paul is saying is that God works all things for the good of those who love him, even the bad things. That's what Joseph was saying to his brothers, right? You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Still, those words can sound trite if you are walking through a difficult season. But I want, I, I want, to, I want you to keep in mind who's writing these words. 
It's Paul, the apostle. Elsewhere, Paul gives us a bit of autobiographical description of his life. He tells us that he was beaten multiple times. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked more than once. He was surrounded by danger wherever he went. Oftentimes he was hunted down by his own people who wanted to execute him. He spent many nights awake. He was hungry. He was cold and he was left out in the exposure. The point is is that that Paul knows what he's talking about. Paul knows suffering. He knows pain and and we should listen to him. So what does Paul mean when he writes God works all things for the good all things for the good of those who love him. He means this that no affliction no affliction no trial no difficulty, no disappointment in the Christian's life is an accident or a coincidence or random or meaningless. More than that, what Paul is saying is that everything God sends our way, everything he allows to happen to us, the good, the bad, the hard, the ugly, is actually what we need in order for God to accomplish our salvation. It's a hard truth, but it's the truth. Now, how can I say this? Was because of Jesus' life and particularly because of Jesus' death on the cross. Because of Jesus' life in death, no affliction, no trial, no difficulty, no disappointment in our lives as believers can ever be understood as the condemning, punitive wrath of God being poured out on us for our sins. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus paid it all. If the hardships and disappointments and pain and suffering in our lives aren't wrathful punishment, then what are they? I love how John Newton answers that question. He writes, believers' suffering, believers' sufferings are not penal. There's no wrath in them. They are only medicinal to promote their chief good. So, let's ask the question. How are our heartaches and hardships medicinal? What possible good could God be working through our trials and sufferings, through our pain and our disappointment? And to answer that question, I want us to think about God's immediate aims and God's ultimate aim in our lives. And I want us to use the Apostle Paul's life as as an example. So what are some of God's immediate medicinal aims when it comes to our suffering and disappointments, I want to suggest to you four. First, the comfort of others. Do you remember how Paul begins his second letter to the church at Corinth? He writes these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us 
in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What Paul is saying here is that in our own personal afflictions and trials and difficulties, God meets us with his mercy and his compassion and his comfort. Many of you, many of you know this, but, but why does God meet us there in that way? It's so that we might be able to offer comfort to others who are going through hard times. In other words, your trials and your difficulties are not just about you, and they're not just for you. Rather, they equip you with wisdom and tenderness and sympathy so that God might, through you, comfort others who are struggling with disappointment and hurt. There's something incredibly comforting about being able to sit down with somebody who has walked the same road you're walking, isn't there? Our struggles, our trials make us more compassionate, more sympathetic to the suffering of our brothers and sisters. And that's a good thing. Immediate Medicinal aim number two, a growing dependence upon God. A few verses later, the Apostle Paul begins to describe a church planning trip he took to Asia. And when he gets to Asia, he, he thinks he's going to die. He writes this, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, think about this. This is, I mean, this makes no sense to me. Paul is probably the greatest evangelist, the greatest church planner in the history of the universe. He's going to plant a church... And he finds himself staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. If, if God is for anything, he is for evangelism and he is for church planning. And yet Paul says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, but what does Paul conclude? Why? Why would, why would God allow this? Why would God permit this? Paul writes, but... But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Friends, so often we come to God with our own agendas for our lives. And oftentimes those agendas are good things. Strengthen, Lord, strengthen my marriage. God, you, you created Man for woman, and you created woman for man. Please, please bless me with a spouse. Or maybe you're married to an unbeliever, and you pray, God, please make my husband, or please make my wife a believer. Or save my wayward child. 
or heal this disease or fan into flame my love for you, O oh God. But oftentimes, even most of the time, it seems like God has a different agenda in mind, doesn't it? What is that agenda? Beloved, the Lord wants to free us from relying upon ourselves and to cultivate in us a heart of absolute dependence upon him. And that's exactly what Paul says here. He, he goes on to write, he, God, delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Friends, God's, God has graciously designed all of our trials, all of our struggles, all of our heartbreak, all of our hurts, so that we might depend upon him more and more. Immediate medicinal aim number three, a richer prayer life. If you're like me, oftentimes your prayer life is lackluster. <laughs> oftentimes our prayers feel more like painful chores than a privilege, don't they? One author put it like this. He said, the glorious privilege of prayer becomes for us a mere task. We ignore at the slightest excuse. The chief pleasure of prayer comes in the finishing of it. Instead of enjoying the blessed communion with the Almighty, we are dragged before God like a slave, and we run away from praying like a thief. Do those words resonate with you at all? And yet, oftentimes our prayer life seems to come to life when the circumstances in our lives begin to crumble around us. A, a life-threatening diagnosis. The child, your child exhibits um, symptoms of, of mental illness or denounces his or her faith. Your heart is broken by a fiancé or perhaps your heart is broken because you've never had a fiancé. Think about what the Apostle Paul does as he comes face to face with the thorn in his flesh. A thorn was, 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 was given to him. A messenger of Satan. What does Paul do? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Oftentimes, affliction and difficulties function like the wind of desperation in the sails of a boat called prayer. Trials hit our lives, not to keep us on our toes, but to keep us on our knees. Friends, God has graciously designed all of our trials, all of our disappointments, so that we would seek and experience rich communion with God through prayer. Lastly, immediate medicinal aim number four. God is working to protect us from ourselves. Oftentimes, comfort and success can lead to coldness and complacency, as well as a blooming, a blossoming of pride and self-centered satisfaction. That's the story of Old Testament Israel that we've been reading about in Ezekiel. And sadly, oftentimes it's 
our experience as well. We read the Bible every day for a week or for a month or for six months. We successfully resist a particular temptation over and over again. We share Christ with the person who becomes a Christian. And what do we do? Like a football player who's just scored a touchdown, we spike the ball and we dance around. And we pose in front of the camera. And that's not a good thing. So what does God do? Like a master jeweler, he places us in the purifying fire of affliction to protect us, to protect us from pride and to purify us from conceit. That's exactly what we see in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has just recounted the fact that he had this most amazing vision. He was actually brought up into the heavens, into paradise. And he said, I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, think, think about what you would have done if you'd been Paul. If I'd been Paul, I'd have come back and I would have, I would have got a t-shirt that said, I've been to heaven and you haven't. But in order to protect Paul from that kind of arrogance, that kind of pride, a thorn was given to him in the flesh. You see, God loves Paul enough to protect him from growing into a a beast of pride. He says... God gave me this thorn in the flesh to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. This teaches us that oftentimes trials are aimed at setting us free from the shackles of pride and self-importance. Oftentimes trials are aimed at protecting us from ourselves. Now, before we move on to the ultimate aim, I want us to think for a minute about application. How can can you and I apply this to our lives? Well, if God really is at work in all things so that we might be able to comfort others, so that we might grow more and more confidently dependent upon God, so that our prayer lives might blossom and so that that he might protect us from self-centeredness and pride, we need to ask the question... Do we see these things happening in our lives? And if not, why not? Beloved, we need to know and we need to meditate upon and we need to pray the promises of God. And we need to take the promises of God with the uh, the promises of God and connect them to the providences of God in our lives. We need to recall how God has comforted us in our past sufferings and trials. We we need to think back on our lives when we felt like we were staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. And we need to remember how God graciously delivered us from our greatest fear. We need to consider how God has graciously used our struggles and the difficulties in our lives to protect us from ourselves and from making terrible decisions. May I make a suggestion? How about taking some time, maybe even this afternoon, 
to reflect and actually record, write down, journal some of the times and some of the ways that you've experienced God working all things for the good in your life. Maybe, maybe you didn't get the job you had hoped to get. And then you watched the person who got that job get chewed up and spit out. And you realize, God was protecting me. That happened to me. I mean, I watched it. I wanted a job. I didn't get it. Another guy got it. And he left the ministry. That was God's grace to me, not giving me that job. Maybe you were diagnosed with a serious illness. And you found yourself praying like you've never prayed before. God was so real to you. He was so close to you. Maybe you went through a very difficult season at work or, or with one of your children. But God used that heartbreak, that hardship to knit your heart more closely to your husband or to your wife. That's our story. Do you have stories like that? If you are a believer, you do. Remember them. Record them, write them down, and review them. Why? Because what Paul is telling us in Romans 8 is that blessings and wounds are equally from his hand and equal tokens of his love and care over us. Do you believe that? Now, what is God's ultimate aims with the suffering and the trials, the hurt and the hardships that we experience. Paul tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Beloved, what Paul is telling us here is that God is both in the good of our lives and in the bad of our lives, making us, shaping us, crafting us, chipping off, chipping off the rough edges, sanding down the coarse areas in our lives, and building us up into a more beautiful piece of art than we could possibly imagine. What Paul is telling us here is that in and through all things, God is conforming us to the image of his Son. In other words, he is making us more and more into what he created and redeemed us to be. He is making us more and more like Jesus. That is God's ultimate aim. See, here's the final question. How do we grow in our conviction that what Paul is saying here is true for me, is true for you? We'll look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Pastor John Piper says that what we have in this verse is the solid logic of heaven. Piper writes, this solid logic of heaven is an argument 
from the greater to the lesser. If strength or will has been exerted to accomplish something hard, then surely that strength or will can accomplish something easier. And then he gives us this example. He says, so suppose your child, you say to your child, please run next door and ask Mr. Smith if we can borrow his pliers. And your child says, but what if Mr. Smith doesn't want us to borrow his pliers? The logic of your request is this. Yesterday, Mr. Smith was happy to let me borrow his car all day long. If he was happy for me to borrow his car, certainly he will be very willing for us to borrow his pliers. Loaning your car is a greater sacrifice than loaning pliers. If it is harder to loan your car than to loan your pliers, it is harder to loan your car than to loan your pliers. And if he was inclined to do the harder thing yesterday, then he will be inclined to do the easier thing today. That is the logic of what Paul is saying in our passage. Paul is saying, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, which was the hard thing, there can be absolutely no doubt that he will most certainly give us all things with him. That is the easy thing for God. This is what Piper calls the holy, heavenly, glorious, inexhaustible logic of heaven. And we must We must ruminate on this logic. We need to think it through. We need to wrestle with it until it conquers us. But it's not just the logic of heaven, as wonderful as it is that we see in these words. We also see the love of God for you, for me. Earlier in the letter to the Romans, Paul writes these words, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle John puts it like this. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, God's love for us in Jesus is why the Apostle Paul can conclude Romans 8 with these glorious words for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is is telling us in this passage is that every moment of our suffering, every heartbreak, every disappointed is rooted in the transforming, sanctifying love of God for you. One last Newton quote. Afflictions are either small daily medicines which our physician and best friend sees that our spiritual maladies require, or they are furnaces to prove and purify our graces, or lastly, they are occasions which his providence appoints for the clear manifestation of his power and love to us, in us, and by us. When he darkens our sky and brings clouds over us, it is the ground on which he designs to paint his rainbow. 
The rainbow is a beautiful and wonderful appearance, but it is never seen in fair weather. Oh, that we would see God's rainbow in our lives. That we would see God's loving hand at work in our lives. His loving hand is a nail-pierced hand. And it guarantees to us that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us the truth even when the truth can be hard to hear. Thank you that there is nothing that happens in our lives that surprises you. Thank you that there's nothing that happens in our lives that you don't actually use to make us more like Jesus. Lord, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Give us faith. May we be the people you have created and redeemed us to be. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we come as people who struggle to actually believe what we've just read. We pray, Lord, that you would take this ordinary bread, this ordinary wine, and that you would use it to feed us yourself. That we would know that your promises, your power, your presence is as real as this bread and this wine. Feed us yourself today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.